guys, we are in a new series called Victory. Say victory with me. Amazing. And it is all about spiritual warfare. And you might think this is quite an unusual topic, but I would argue that it is very necessary to talk about. Because the Bible clearly acknowledges that there is some type of spiritual fight. And we can see this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. I'll read from the NLT version. It says this, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood animals, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against all evil spirits in the heavenly place. So clearly the Bible is articulating that there is a wrestle. And it's saying that the warfare we're in is not just like a physical warfare, like if you're playing football against another team. But it actually says it is a spiritual, there's a spiritual warfare. You know, the Bible makes the assumption that just like how there's a very real and present physical world that you can touch, see, um, taste and hear, there's a very real spiritual world that normally serves as a scaffolding behind our experiences in the physical world. And if you were here last week, um, our friend Yukon um, gave us a great biblical overview of spiritual warfare. And one thing he outlined is that there is a God, creator of heaven and earth, who is full of mercy and justice and full of good intent. And this God created other spiritual beings besides himself to help him carry out the good plans he intended, good plans. And these other spiritual beings that he created is otherwise known as the divine council, you know, a.k.a. God's heavenly staff team. So just think about that. Like, it's, that's, that's what it is. It's God's heavenly staff team who he has commissioned to carry out his plans. And even though he created these spiritual beings to carry out um, his good plans, some of these spiritual beings rebelled against God. And they used the influence, and they used their influence over... Um, regions and over different um, people that was given from God for evil and for destruction. And this still happens today, where these spiritual beings that were literally given influence, given power from God, they rebelled against God and they used it rather um, for, for service of God to carry out his good intentions. They used it to rebel against God and to bring about destruction. And this rebellion was spearheaded by a being um, scripture cause in Hebrew, Hasatan. And in English, it's obviously translated as the Satan, a.k.a. the devil. And for some of us who are familiar with these terms, you know, Satan and the devil, I would just like to note that these are not proper terms or these are not proper names um, for this um, being, but it's actually a title to describe the position of this dark spiritual being that spearheads the rebellion against God and the evil we see in today's world. So that's why it's actually more accurate to say the Satan, which means the adversary or the one who's against you and the one who opposes you. Or another um, title used to describe this being is the devil, which is the English, English translation of the Greek word um, diapolis which means literally someone who slanders you and someone who seeks to defame another person and someone who seeks to ruin reputations. 
So even in our day, you know, there's this um, whole cultural paradigm where it is the norm to expose people and to publicly shame them in a hostile way. And it actually resembles the very thing that the devil does to us. The devil aims to slander God's people and to ruin their reputation. And, you know, you might be thinking, you know, Wale, this is being too extra. <laughs> um, surely this is, just an this is just an exaggeration. You know, there is good and evil in the world. And it's just because some people are kind and other people are just jerks. And all of these... <laughs> And all these things about a spiritual world and this dark, rebellious um, being known as the Satan or, you know, the devil is way too extra and it's just weird. And I agree, it is weird. But Jesus himself speaks about the, de the devil. And we can read this in John chapter 8. So let's turn there. John chapter 8, verse 42. And I just want to give some context. I'll be reading from the NRV version. So Jesus is um, talking to a group of Jews who are opposing him. And these Jews are saying that we are the real children of God. So essentially, they are saying that we are the true followers of God. And this is where we can pick up from verse 42. And Jesus is responding to them. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God has sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the very beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, speaking about the devil, when he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. So like I said and before, we are doing a series on spiritual warfare. And many of us, when we think of spiritual warfare, you know, our minds instantly goes to a picture of someone who's having close to an epileptic attack. And they're convulsing on the floor and there's a group of people around them shouting, get out, get out, because perhaps there's an oppressive spirit um, on them. Or for others of us, maybe you think spiritual warfare is when you have a scary dream, so after you wake up, you quickly switch on some worship music. And maybe for others of you, um, you think spiritual warfare is when something unexpectedly goes wrong and you have no idea why, or when you fall into a particular temptation. And lastly, maybe there's some of you who feel like there's nothing spiritual about warfare and the only warfare there is is trying to get to my 9 a.m. early or perhaps even my morning staff meeting. And may I suggest, regardless of how you see spiritual warfare, all these different things I mention are not the number one way that the devil uses to bring destruction to this world and to ourselves. Can I just perhaps suggest that the number one way, the number one tactic that the devil uses is lies? And we can actually see this in the devil's interaction with the first humans in Genesis chapter 2. And in this account um, of Genesis 2 and 3, the devil is portrayed as a serpent. So let's take a look at that. So Genesis 2 verse 15. The NIV version, it says... 
the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him. And let's go to, let's skip to verse 25. It says, Adam and his wife, so the Lord made um, um, Eve. It says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So he made him a wife. Okay, let's go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. So now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the women, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? Verse 2, the women said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. So the Lord gives, so we have um, two humans um, here, a man and a woman called Adam and Eve who are in the garden called Eden. And Eden literally means delight. So just imagine they are in a place where God's presence resides, where there's, tot- where there's total delight, where there's bliss and rest. And the devil, you know, the serpent in this particular account, knows that the Lord has given um, Adam particular instruction that you can eat any tree from the garden, but you can't eat the tree from the knowledge of good and evil. And the devil basically comes, and who is called crafty? So in other words, he is good at... um, at forming his words and forming divisive strategies. And he basically tries to find a way to get Adam and Eve to kick them out of this garden. So we can see here very clearly um, early on that the devil aims to kick God's people out of place of, um, the devil aims to kick God's people out of a place of delight, bliss, and rest. And how does he do this? Firstly, the devil exaggerates. The devil says to Eve in verse 1, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, verse 2, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but did God say you must not eat fruit from, but God, sorry, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. So just look at the language that he uses. He says, did God really say you must not eat fruit from any tree in the garden? So firstly, the devil portrays the Lord as unreasonable. Like, why would God say that you should not eat any fruit from the garden? How can you eat? When in actual fact, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord only gave the commandment of one tree in the garden. So the devil portrays a commandment from the law that was meant to protect Adam and Eve as something that confines them. And for example, the Christian perspective of sexual ethics is portrayed in society as suppressive, as the Lord is trying to quench you from having fun or to stifle your growth. But when in actual fact, the Lord is trying to protect us. 
You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, that there's no other sin like sexual sin that affects the body like this one. Essentially, um, Paul is saying in these words that sexual sin is a form of self-harm. And personally for me, I have not met one individual that does not carry a form of brokenness because of sexual sin. It might be because of their own personal um, past, or perhaps it might be because of someone else's um, actions. And just to reiterate, the devil promotes narratives in our worlds and internally that says that God is doing too much, he's too extra, he is trying to confine me. And let's continue in verse 4. The devil responds to Eve. Verse 4, you will certainly, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what else does the devil do? Secondly, the devil understates the consequences of this. He says, you will not certainly die. Don't worry, there's not going to be any repercussions with what you do. Nothing will happen to you. And we find out later that that is not true, that because of this act of disobedience, it actually led to a physical death. So just to reiterate, the devil firstly made God look unreasonable, and secondly, he understated the consequences. And lastly, the devil made God look untrustworthy. We can see this in verse 5. He says, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he's saying the only reason God doesn't want you to eat this fruit from this tree is because you are going to be like God. So the devil is suggesting that God is stopping you from reaching your full potential. Or like again in our culture, in other words, God is stopping you from fully expressing yourself. As a result, he's not to be trusted. And you know, I find this very ironic because the devil is saying that God is stopping you from being like him. When in actual fact, in, first, in Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, scripture says that mankind was created in God's image. They were already like God. But the devil caused them to think otherwise whilst, while simultaneously questioning the motives that God had towards them. So yeah, let's continue with this story, verse 6, Genesis 3, verse 6. It says, when the women saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was, he was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig trees together and made coverings for themselves. So they saw, they ate the fruits, they saw they were naked, and they decided to sew fig leaves together and made a coverings for themselves. So really quickly, let me just summarize what happened here. You know, by God, by by making God look reason, by making God look unreasonable, cheapening the consequences of their actions, and presenting God as untrustworthy, the devil successfully influenced Adam and Eve to eat the fruit that to eat the fruit from the tree that God told them not to eat from, and he did this through lies. And what was the consequence? 
the consequence, one of the consequences, was that their eyes were open. And immediately they saw that they were different from each other. And they were in shame. They clothed themselves with fig leaves in order to hide their differences. So just imagine, by having an opposing narrative that's coming into the picture, scripture says that they were both naked. Before, before that narrative came into the picture, an opposing narrative, scripture says that they were naked and unashamed. In God's presence, where, that, where his voice was the only dominant voice they could hear, their difference was something to celebrate. They could see clearly that there were compliments. But now, after the introduction of this opposing voice, their difference was something to be ashamed of, was to protect each other from. And as a result, this was the ultimate thing that happened. They started to have a, they, they started to have a distorted view of themselves, and they started to have a distorted view of their relationship. Okay, let's turn to verse 8. We're almost at the end. It says this, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said this, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? So in addition to obtaining a distorted view of themselves and of their relationships, they, they also had a distorted view of God. They hid from God and the thought that because we are naked and because we have such differences, surely we should be ashamed and surely we can't interact with God. And God was now someone, so just imagine, they had been people who would freely walk <laughs> naked in the garden, unashamed in God's presence. And they were completely transformed, they were completely open to God. But now God is now seen as someone that you need to avoid. And that's what sin does. When sin enters your life, rather than seeing God as someone that you can commune with, seeing God as someone that you can relate with, you see him as someone who you viciously need to avoid, that you can't be next to. But God says this to them, who told you you were naked? In other words, who taught you to think like that? And there's some things that God says to us as well, who taught you to think like that? Who have you been listening to? And we'll get onto that later on. But yeah, a few more verses. Verse 12, it says, The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit, um, fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said these words, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. The serpent deceived me. So we can see later on in this chapter that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, this place of delight, this place of bliss. And they were sent to toll the land. And they now, um, one of the curses that happened, one of the judgments that happened, was that they now had to work tirelessly in order to eat. They had to work the land. 
and Eve as well, one of the things that happened is that she will now, and every woman after her will now experience childbirth pain. So you can thank Eve for that, ladies in the room. In addition to this, including Adam and even every human being um, after them, because of their sin, it meant, it meant that every single human um, being in this world will experience a physical death one day. So just to summarize, the enemy's first tactic to kick mankind out from a place of delight, rest, happiness, bliss, provision, security in who they are, a correct alignment in relationships and intimacy with God was small lies and deception. And I just want to suggest that the devil still does this today. He still has small lies that makes us insecure in ourselves. Small lies that makes us uncertain in our relationships with God, in our identity, in our state of mind, in our world, in our relationships, and so much more. And the implications of believing these lies is simply self-destruction, just like Adam and Eve experience. Because like we read before in John chapter 8, Scripture says that the devil is a murderer, so he uses these lies to cause people to implode internally and, and causes their lives to also implode externally as well. Yeah. And that's what he does. And John chapter 8 verse 44 says this. When he lies, talking about the devil, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. There's no other language that he speaks than lies. And as human beings, you know, we have the ability to imagine things that are not there, but we also have the ability to envision things that are not true. And I'm not sure if any of you guys have watched this on YouTube. Has anyone heard of the marshmallow test? Yeah, the marshmallow test. Okay, so if I explain it, maybe it will, you will remember it. So essentially, they will get like this toddler and they'll sit the toddler down in a room by himself and there's one marshmallow on the table and the, the person doing the test says that, actually, it's normally that parent. The parent normally says that, okay, if you don't eat this marshmallow, I will give you two marshmallows. If you don't eat it in the, in the next one minute, I'll give you two marshmallows and stuff. So the parent now leaves the room and the child is left alone with this glorious marshmallow. And they are literally like, you can see like this child almost like getting triggered and they're like, oh, you know, some of, some of them are sniffing it. Some of them, you know, are just like, I saw one child literally licking around the table, <laughs> licking around the marshmallow. And um, some of them, there was another child that was just like stroking the marshmallow. <laughs> And it was, it was really, it was really unusual <laughs> just watching a child being tempted. <laughs> but it was really, it was, it was really interesting. And, um, and some of these, and some of the children literally couldn't resist. And they were like, oh, I just have to eat it. And when the parent came back, they were like, what, you do, what did you do? And they're like, nothing, and blah, blah, blah. But some of these kids, um, actually what it was able to resist the temptation and the reason they were able to resist the temptation of eating this marshmallow is because they could imagine having a second marshmallow they could imagine being another one there 
And, and that's something that we can all do. We can all imagine something that is not real. And we can also imagine and we have the ability to envision something that is not true. But I would just like to note, because something might seem real, it doesn't mean it is true. And um, my family, um, over, over my childhood, we spent a lot of time in America because we have um, a lot of um, family in America and my God family and my God sisters all live in America and stuff. And I remember um, throughout my childhood, um, African-Americans used to wear a lot of Tommy Hilfiger. And apparently the history of that is that um, Snoop Dogg um, if you know who he is, <laughs> or what is it, Snoop Flying? What's his name? Sn Snoop Dogg, so he's changed. Okay, okay. Anyway, Snoop. Um, <laughs> so, um, so Snoop, Snoop um, wore Tommy Hilfiger one day, and as a result, it just went crazy in the hip-hop scene, and everyone wanted to wear um, Tommy Hilfiger. You saw Destiny Charles now wearing Tommy Hilfiger, and so many African-Americans wanted to wear Tommy Hilfiger. And then there was this rumor that started spreading around, and it literally like spread around like, like a fire. And um, the rumor was that Tommy Hilfiger basically went onto the Oprah show and he said that if I had known that so many ethnic minorities would wear my um, clothes, I would have cheapened the fabric. And as a result, um, Oprah basically was appalled and she basically said, get off my show. And what's interesting is that I remember um, one year coming back, looking around, I'm like, oh, no one is wearing Tommy Hilfiger anymore. And um, I remember even people being like, yeah, 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 like, and when I was in the States, yeah, we don't wear Tommy Hilfiger anymore. And I was like, okay, cool. Um, but basically, an interview came out a few years ago where um, Oprah invited Tommy Hilfiger to her show. And she actually said that this rumor is a lie. This never happened. This is actually the first time that Tommy has been on my show. And I invited him to my show to actually say that this is not true and stuff. And Tommy was like, yeah, this is not true. I've never been on Oprah's show. And Oprah and I are very good friends and stuff like that. But I think it's interesting because we all know about the effects of fake news, but that was a fake news. And basically people heard that and believed it was reality and acted on a lie. And this is what the enemy does. The enemy uses disordered events from the past, fabricated perceptions, half-truths to, to present a false ideology for you to believe and to adopt. Just like we read with Adam and Eve, he said, did God really say all the trees in the garden? And this was a half-truth because God did say, you know, don't eat from a tree, but it was only one tree. And most of the time, the enemy doesn't need to tell you a blatant lie. He just needs to twist the truth and use real evidence and real events to project a false perspective for you to believe. And just to give another example, I remember um, when I was in uni, my friends, I had those type of friends that always believed that someone was screwing them. And they, they constantly were like, why is this girl screwing me? I don't like her clothes. Why is she screwing me? And stuff like that. 
And I'm like, are you sure this girl's screwing you? They're like, look at her. Why is she screwing me and stuff? And later on, when we actually engaged with some of these people, we found out that they were just, we found out that they were just so kind and, and really just fun to be around. And it was actually just their resting face. But by the way my friends were acting beforehand, you would think that this person had been against them for years. And they acted in such a way because they believed something that wasn't true. In other words, they believed a lie. And I can just face it like this. What you think will shape what you believe. And what you believe will shape how you behave. So think, believe, think, believe, behave. So if something is a lie and if you believe it and actually act on it like it's true, it can actually become your reality. For example, if you believe that you are an unlovable person due to the past events in your life and you act like it's true, then one day you might grow to become someone who starts to discolor uh, relationships and that lie has essentially become your reality. So all these things, all these lies are unhealthy things that we believe. What do we do with them? Because we all have it inside of us. And I just want to offer a quick solution in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Are you guys still with me? I know there's a lot to go through. But yeah, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. It says this. We, dis, de, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. So one thing is that we are spiritually formed and we are shaped by what we think and by the different ideas we entertain. So scripture clearly says that when we have these type of thoughts, we take it captive, we capture it like a prisoner, and we don't allow these lies and toxic belief systems to just float around in our heads and just spiral out of control because they have the potential to shape you and to form you negatively. And and it goes on to say that you take these thoughts and you make it obedient to Christ. But, you know, something that I've realized is that, and even with myself, that most people, when it comes to, you know, unhealthy mindsets and even lies, um, we try not to focus on it and we try just to suppress it. But you can't really do this with thoughts. You can't just avoid a man, you can't just avoid a mindset, but you transform a mindset. And you ask the Lord, what do you think of this? You capture that thought and you present it before God and you say, God, what is your truth in all of this? What do you think of this? What does your word say? Amen. Okay, so really quickly, just to round off, I just want to give some practicalities on how to break off lies. Y'all ready? Are you sure? Okay, so number one, identify the undertones. So the devil in, in the Genesis account of Adam and Eve made God sound unreasonable, untrustworthy, and even understated and questioned the consequences. So I want you to just think, what are those things in your life? What are those things that you believe that automatically makes God sound unreasonable, that makes God sound untrustworthy, and that undermines and understates the consequences? 
Okay, you got that? Okay, so number two, test the fruit. So again, with this Genesis account, the devil did two things with these lies. He made them not trust the Lord and encouraged them to act on their own initiative. And number two, he redefined what is right and wrong. So for me, I find this to be a very helpful practice, just asking myself these questions. Does this thing that I'm believing, does it lead me further or closer to God? Does it cause me to be more self-reliant or more reliant on God? And the next question is, does this thing justify inappropriate behavior and poor character? And, and, and am I noticing that over some time my conscience is being blunted? And am I not as quick to be repentant? Okay, number three, the use of scripture and memorizing scripture. So Jesus is literally known as the person that silenced the devil. And he silenced the devil when he was tempted by the devil. I believe it's in Luke 4, um, no, Matthew Luke 4, Matthew 4. Um, he silenced the devil with the use of scripture. So the enemy was trying to tempt him with different things. And um, for example, when he said, you know, um, change the stones into bread, he said that man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. And when we start studying scripture, and when we start memorizing scripture, those words, those revelations from God become an arsenal inside of us. And when, when a lie comes our way, then the Lord is able to just raise up those revelations to counteract it so we're not easily shaken. Number four, have others around you. You know, one reason why the serpent, a.k.a. the devil, was able to deceive Eve is because she was alone. She was isolated. And it's in times of isolation that sometimes some of these lies and some of these unhealthy mindsets and conclusions about ourselves and others start to form. So a quick practical tip. Um, you can literally just ask a friend and you can ask someone in your cruise, am I seeing things right here? Do you think this is God's truth in this particular situation? And lastly, number five, ask God for his perspective on past events. You know, often we don't have God's perspective on who we are on, and on our past. Like I mentioned before, Adam and Eve saw their differences and they were instantly ashamed. And we jump to false conclusions about ourselves and about others that bring shame. So a helpful practice is to ask God, what is, the, what is your perspective of what I went through? And allow the Lord to just sovereignly speak his redemption over you. Because he says in John chapter 3, verse 17, scripture says that Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. So this is one thing that you can do. You can literally say, God, if you come to save me, could you speak your redemption? And could you give me your perspective over my past and how you're able to redeem it? And I just want to encourage um, all of us today that the truth will set you free. That's what John chapter 8, verse 31 is. And I think it is really important that we consistently ask ourselves, am I believing what God says? 
does what is the way I'm operating is my lifestyle is it is it perhaps built on a subtle lie from the enemy or is it because you know this is actually what actually what God has said and if the truth sets you free then really simply we can just conclude that a lie cages you and I just kind of feel like as I'm speaking, I feel like for some of us, we've just been feeling this suppression for some time. And we've been feeling like, oh, like I, I just feel stuck. I just feel like I can't um, get over this. And I just feel limited constantly. And I just pray that the truth of the Lord would just set you free.